finish uh, the, the, what we were unpacking on Ephesians 5:21 through 33, I'll do a little review to kind of bring us back up to date and finish talking a little bit about that. Uh, and then we're going to go into something that uh, I recognize probably doesn't affect every marriage in here, but there's at least one or two marriages that this will affect, and so it'll be important to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about conflict, okay? So I'm just seeing if you guys are listening, all right? So, but before we get there, <clears throat> I want to mention something. I was thinking about this today, and I thought, all right, I'll bring this up with, with y'all and see if it makes any sense. I, I ran it by some of the other pastors, and they thought it was worth talking to you about, and then they were laughing up their sleeves. I don't know what they're, anyway, so a couple weeks ago, Sean Myers preached, and, and if he opened his message uh, when, going, by going to Colossians first, and it was really interesting to me because the point he made was uh, so many of us think that we can attain righteousness by coming up with some list that we keep for God, and then that makes us righteous in God's eyes if we keep this list. And Paul is saying in Colossians, take your list and throw it away. The list does you no good. Even if you kept everything on the list, it's not going to do you any good. It's only by the gospel, the grace of Christ, that, that, that you are saved. Okay? But then he, and then he said, and I thought this was really interesting, but then uh, Jesus intervenes in your life, invades your life, changes your heart, and you become a Christian, and then what does Jesus do? Gives you a list. <laughs> Okay, but here's the difference. Uh, the way you were handling the list before was the list was a prerequisite to possibly being in relationship. The way you handle the list after is it's something that naturally flows out of the relationship. Okay? So that's exactly what marriage is supposed to, a gospel-centered marriage is supposed to look like. Um, Marriages where, and I run into this all the time, marriages where one spouse wants another spouse to sort of keep a list, and your ability to keep that list or not keep that list is going to determine whether your spouse feels like they're in good relationship with you. Are you tracking with me on this? Okay. Well, there are a lot of marriages that are set up like that, and, and those are, it may work some of the time, but ultimately they're doomed to frustration. Because you can never keep all the lists, right? Especially if it's a requirement or prerequisite for you to actually be in healthy relationship. But a marriage where two people come together and desperately love each other and are doing that because of the gospel in their lives and they're seeking Christ together and then they do these things for each other out of the love and out of the relationship, that's a whole different thing then. And so when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. This should, be, this should be happening as an overflow of your relationship with Christ and with each other, not in order to make your relationship better. Does that, does that make sense? Now, the irony, of course, is that it will make your relationship better if you do these things. It will, okay? But the motivation is what we're trying to get at, okay? So let me... Um, Go back again and just read this passage and then we'll finish unpacking it because what we'll do is we'll get right into now, which we never got to two weeks ago, what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband and what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? What, what does that really mean? What does that look like? So, Ephesians 5, starting at 21. 
Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. A husband who loves his wife in a gospel-centered relationship is actually participating in the sanctification of his wife. Okay? That's one of the things that Paul is saying there. Um, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let, um, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, uh, what does it mean for the wife to submit to the husband? Well, couple, we like to... Uh, uh, we like to uh, Uh, define things through the negative. So I'll start this definition with some negatives at first. Number one, it does not mean that she is inferior. Okay? A lot of people take this and hear this as it means somehow that the wife is inferior to the husband. It has has no such connotation. Okay? Uh, the, The biblical understanding of maleness and femaleness is that we are equal in status and different in role. Okay? But there is no inferior... Uh, thing about women or wives, okay? It also does not mean that she does not have an opinion, okay? I have a wife. Some of you know her. They have opinions. And they're going to express them, and they should express them. I I should be hearing a few high-pitched amens right now. Okay? And in fact, here's how Larry Wright once said it, and I think he's I think he's absolutely spot on on this, okay? He said the husband that does not seek input from his wife on certain and major decisions, certain decisions meaning decisions that she would want to be involved in, and certainly any major decision, the husband that does not seek input from his wife is a fool. Okay, that's a pretty strong word, okay? It's a fool, all right? Uh, It also does not mean that she does not have gifts, abilities, and talents, and they should be used. God has gifted her just like he's gifted men, and so there are gifts, and and she's going to use them, and she should use them. And and what that looks like in marriages is sometimes going to be different. Uh, People look at our marriage sometimes and think it's weird. Um, I could, I, I could never run a handyman business unless all I did was dispatch. That's the only thing I'd be able to do. Jackie, on the other hand, can build a house from the ground up, literally. I mean, she's like, she's, she knows how to do all that stuff. Jackie is a... I'm really good at reading contracts and understanding contracts and negotiating contracts. Jackie's really good at negotiating the purchase price of stuff. 
I can't remember the last time any one of our cars was, per, was, was actually negotiated for by me. Jackie actually goes out and does it. And in fact, she's gained such a reputation in our family that now anybody in our family that goes out to buy a car, they take Jackie with her. She's like the hammer, okay? That's traditionally been seen as the man's role, okay? Um, Jackie does not have the gift of doing laundry. She doesn't. <clears throat> you should see me, however, fold t-shirts. I'm good at it. And I don't mind doing it. And I like doing it. Okay? There are a lot of guys right now who are not coming back next week. I understand that. But, you know, these are just non-traditional roles. But we're working, you know, we're working all this out. I mean, you know... It just makes no sense for me to go, all right, I'm going to fix that door over there, even though I don't know how and you'd do a better job, but I'm the man. That just makes absolutely no sense, okay? It's only going to frustrate everybody, and she's going to end up fixing it anyway, okay? So there's roles, there's gifts, there's abilities, there's talents, and they should be used, okay? Now, the biggest thing that this means, this submission, is, is it's really about respect and affirmation. Guys desperately need respect, and they need to be affirmed. Ladies, I, I just, I implore you to understand how critically important this is to guys. It, there, there is no faster way to damage and sabotage your relationship with your husband than to pick at him, especially in a public place. And I'm telling you, it drives me nuts to go to Fashion Square or Arrowhead or whatever and see the just absolutely disrespectful mouths on some of these women who publicly pronounce curses on their boyfriends or husbands. And, and I'm sitting there going, it's not going to help. It's going to make things worse. Yes, I know, he's a jerk, he's a loser, he's this, he's that. He's got issues, but this is not the approach. It won't help, okay? When you, here you go. You are emotionally emasculating your husband when you do that to him. You are, and it's very difficult to recover from that. It just is. That's, that's the reality of it. And at, at the end of this, when we talk about the loving and everything, I'm going to make a statement and unpack that that'll help maybe make this understand a little bit more, Okay? But it, by the way, if you're, if you're somebody who has, you know, tried this <clears throat> strategy of criticizing or nitpicking or just, you know, emasculating your husband in public, uh, here's, the, here's one of the things that happens for the guy, okay? That puts him in an absolute no-win situation, okay? If this was another guy doing it, there, there's a different protocol and different decorum when one guy insults another guy in public, right, guys? Right? Okay, well, you can't do that with your wife, okay? If you go back at her, you are seen as mean. If you don't, you are seen as weak. And we all know that as guys, and that's a problem. So we, we're in a no, you put us in a no-win situation. Ha, I'm going to get my way now. No, you're not. <laughs> it's, not mo it's demotivating, it is not motivating, okay? I can't stress this enough, Okay? And, and by the way, all the research, this is what the Bible says, but all the research confirms this, okay? It just confirms it. And yet, 
there's this attitude that somehow we're going to change men by doing these things to them that are completely demotivating, okay? So, it's your turn now, guys. Oh, I'm not done with the women, as a matter of fact. Um, It also means to to submit to your husband, to respect your husband, to uh, affirm your husband, it means that you need to protect him. It means that you need to protect him. What, what do you mean by it? physically? No, that's not what we're talking about. But protect him in that way that I just talked about from the negative perceptions that he's going to have if, if you're attacking him, okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about protection in a minute, but it does mean that you need to also protect him. And then last, submission is really more of an attitude than an action. Submission is more of an attitude than an action, okay? Um, people have asked me before, well, does Jackie submit to you? Yes. Well, give me an example. I can't. She has an attitude of submission to me. But I also have an attitude of including her in decisions, and generally we come to the same conclusion after we talk about it. And she's never manipulated me in this. Of course, she's really good at it, so I wouldn't know. But she's... (laughs) But seriously, this is, it's, it's an attitude, not an action, okay? And, and by the way, one time in our 26, almost 26 years of marriage, one time I wheeled out 522 and used it in, as an, in, in an argument. One time. One time, okay? I lost the argument. W- guys, when you wheel out this verse, you've lost, okay? So just suck it up and take it, <laughs> all right? If you have to wheel it out, th- there's no point, okay? Um, it's not helpful when husbands and wives start quoting scripture to each other in anger, okay? It just doesn't work, okay? Um, Jackie has an attitude of respect, admire, deference, and she does this even when I don't deserve it, okay? So it's not just, he's making good decisions today, I'm going to have an attitude of submission. That's not it. I've made some rotten decisions, and she knew it going in. She still went along. It was okay, Uh, The more she treats me with respect, in in our 26-year marriage, the more she has treated me with respect when I was not worthy of the respect, the more respectable I have become. That's how the gospel works. Do you guys get that? This is like, some of your faces are just absolutely blank. Are you not getting it or are you just not believing it? Okay, I don't know which one it is, but... The more she has treated me with respect when, I'm, when I don't deserve it, it's not that she's been hornswoggled or delusioned by my, my respectability. It's that it has built me up and affirmed me in a way that I want to behave more respectable. I'm a better husband as a result of it. Okay? Um, and, and just notice that the text does not say submit when it's right, convenient, comfortable, or when he's respectable. Otherwise, you probably never would. Okay, so now, what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? <clears throat> Just love her. All right, now we're moving on. I'm, okay. <clears throat> okay, here you go. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Uh, how does Christ love the church? Start naming the ways that Christ loves the church. Gave his life. He died to himself 
so that he could serve the church. Okay? This is tangential, but I love the quote. Tom Schrader often says to young pastors, Christ died for the church so you don't have to, okay? But he did die for the church and husbands need to remember that. You need to die to yourself. You need to wear that cross on your back, not around your neck. And you need to live for your wife because you're living for Christ. That's what Christ is calling you for you, okay? What else about this, what Christ does for the church? What else about it? He loves them he loves the church in what way? Unconditionally. That's a really good thing. Because I, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm on the inside, and some of you know this in, and have never been on the inside, but I'm on the inside, so I know this as well as anybody. The church can be desperately unlovable. Amen? He loves us anyway. Loves the church anyway. So I would give the same admonishment to the guys that I did to the women, okay? Your call is not to love your wife when she's lovable. Your call is to love your wife all the time, even when she's not lovable. <clears throat> and, and here you go. As I have loved Jackie, even when she's unlovable, it has made her more lovable. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's a gospel thing. It has made her more lovable, okay? She, when, when, when she recognizes that I loved her through her at her absolute worst, it just tells her, he really does love me unconditionally and affectionately, and that's going to that's gonna adjust her attitude. It's one of those gospel things, okay? So he died, Jesus died for the church, so husbands, you've got to die for yourselves. And, and I've had husbands say to me, well, that's a really high calling, yeah, it is. It's a high calling. It's a high calling for your wife to have to submit to you too. Everybody's in, this, in the high calling thing. It's a high calling, okay? It really is, all right? Now, you're also going to participate in sanctifying her. You do that by the power of the Holy Spirit as you tenderly lead her and love her. And remember, spiritual growth rarely, if ever, happens in isolation. Do you all understand that? Okay, now, some people have the gift of singleness. Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think on the sixth night, uh, the last night of this, we'll, we'll get to that passage and talk a little bit about it. Because it's also the sex passage, which the guys are really interested in, okay? So we'll talk about that. Some people have the gift of singleness, they need, to, they need to seek community in other ways to help work on their sanctification, okay? So the church has to be their family, and, and the church has to help them with their sanctification. But in marriage, and, and husbands and wives get sanctified outside of their marriage as well, but the primary sanctification for husbands and wives is going to take place in their marriage. And, and there is no better crucible in the world than marriage for sanctification, right? You're taking two ruthlessly selfish, sinful people, putting them together in the same location and saying, okay, now love each other and submit to each other. That's going to be sanctification. It's going to get hot in a number of different ways and that's going to help sanctify you. And that is a blessing and a gift from God, not a challenge, not a punishment. Some of you are like, you don't know my spouse. Okay, I get it, all right? But that's, that's what God calls us to. So you're going to participate in her sanctification. And 
you're going to love your wife as much or more than you love yourself. That is the call. Okay? And here's, here's, what, here's what that means. It means you're going to have to set aside and eliminate your idols, guys. You're going to have to identify and then set aside and even eliminate your idols in your life. Okay, now, what does that mean? Well, I love golf. I know we got some golfers in here. I love golf. Okay, does that mean you give up golf? No. But, but there has to be some understanding and perspective that every spare moment that you have now is not spent golfing. And I've run into marriages like this. If he's not at work, he's golfing, and he's got a wife and kids. That's a problem. He's got an idol in his life, okay? So whatever that idol might be uh, for you, okay? And then it means that you need to cherish her. Treat her with affection. She wants affectionate love. Intimacy to guys is primarily physical, Intimacy to women is primarily emotional. Y'all get that? Come on, not, not a head or, you know, yeah, okay, all right. Good. So, so you get that. So here you go, guys. Uh, all right, so who knows what NST stands for? NST. Anybody know what NST stands for? It's, it's one of the, yeah, it's the, one of the most important things that a woman needs in her life. It's non-sexual touching, okay? Now, most of you guys right now are going, those words do not belong in the same sentence, okay? They, they just don't, okay? Yes, they do. And she needs this. She needs this from you a lot, okay? I still, I still hold hands with Jackie in public. I rub her feet almost every night while we're watching TV. I, I'm telling you. But, but okay, you're like, okay. Mark, let me tell you, there's, there's benefits on the other end of this, I'm telling you. <laughs> Jackie's not the only one who can manipulate, all right? So anyway, uh, touch that doesn't necessarily lead to the physical act of sex needs to happen in your marriage. By the way, I was teaching this at Paradise Valley Community Church one Sunday morning, and, and it, there's 300 people there or whatever, and, and, and occasionally I would ask a question and call for people to respond. I haven't really done that yet at Arcadia. Sometimes you're just so quiet here, you know. It's like, wake up. Now I have a question for you. Anyway, so I said, does anybody know what NST stands for? Dead silence. And then about five seconds later, from all the way in the back, you heard this voice, a man's voice. No sex tonight. <laughs> it was awesome. I prayed. We ended the service right there, so... So, anyway, little things. Um, the the non-sexual touching, the notes, um, little notes, even occasionally flowers for no reason, just acts of affection. If you know anything about Gary Chapman's love languages and stuff, okay, almost always one of the love languages of a woman is, is affection, acts of affection and and those little things. I mean, this is, this is really important, okay? And it can go a long way, all right? Um, Jackie and I uh, do this all the time. We check in with each other at least once a day, usually more than that. I, even after 26 years, I tell her every single day, multiple times, that I love her and that I think she's beautiful. 
Um, I just assume that if I'm not telling her, some schmuck might start telling her and she might start liking that schmuck better than me. So I'm going to be in the game all the time, all right? I'm, I'm bringing my A game all the time, all right? Um, here's the way some of us have put this. Guys, you, you need to... Guys tend to be hunter-gatherers, okay? And so it's very common for a guy's behavior to end after the honeymoon and change, okay? Because they've bagged the moose. I mean, that's just kind of how it works, all right? So what you need to do is continue. You need to... I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. This is the roughest crowd I've ever used that analogy on. People in the Midwest love that line, okay? What, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that, guys, you need to stay in hunter-gatherer mode after the marriage is done, but the only person you're hunting for is your wife. It's the only one. That, you have to keep doing this. You've got to do it. And I'm telling you, it, 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 just, it just makes things better. That sounds like a lot of work. So is marriage counseling and fighting and conflict, Okay? You're going to work one way or the other. It might as well be productive. Okay? All right? Um, and finally, guys, just don't be a mama's boy. All right? <laughs> Got an amen on that one. Yeah. Okay? Um, both spouses need to do this, but there's sever- there are several uh, New Testament scholars who make the argument that actually this is more of the... This is more of a problem uh, um, for uh, the wife being a victim of this and the husband needs to be the one to, to make sure that his wife doesn't go through this. You need to protect each other from, from each other's families, but especially, guys, you need to protect your wife from your family, okay? It's important both ways, but especially in many situations um, there's some unhealthy things that can go on there, okay? So, um, here's, here's this closing comment, and then we'll move into uh, conflict and conflict resolution. Um, husbands need to be protected in marriage, and wives need to feel safe in marriage. Husbands need to be protected, and wives need to feel safe. And I know some of you are going, that's a distinction without a difference. No, it's not. The differences are huge, okay? And uh, uh, next week, we'll unpack this a lot more when we do social exchange theory and his needs, her needs stuff, which is what the uh, DVDs are, or the CDs are actually, the, the his needs, her needs stuff, the emotional needs. We'll, we'll unpack this a little bit more uh, next week. But the wife's feeling of safety has to do with how you communicate with her, um, which we'll talk about a lot next week, the differences in the way men and women communicate, how you communicate with her, and th- the fact that you can't let anything surprise, you've you got to work hard to not let anything surprise her. She needs to feel safe. It's, uh, another word would be security. She needs to feel secure at all times. Okay? If she's constantly looking over her shoulder because she thinks the car is going to be repossessed or something, you're not being open and honest with her or something's going to happen, if she, if she has the feeling that she's going to be blindsided by something, that's not healthy and that's a problem. And you need to figure out what, why that's happening and you need to make her feel safe. But wives, you need to make your husbands feel protected. By protected, that means that uh, one scholar calls it 
he likes domestic tranquility, okay? Um, he needs to know that he's going to come home to an environment where um, um, he's not going to be assaulted because he's been out in the world already being assaulted all day. So now he needs to be able to come home and not feel like he's going to get assaulted there as well. I've run into lots of guys who uh, apparently are working 12 to 16 hours a day, but they're really not working four to six of those hours. They're just sitting in their offices because it's more peaceful in the office than it is at home. And part of this feeling of protection is that they got to know that you're not going to emasculate them publicly. You're not going to criticize them or nitpick them. Um, th th people really get riled up about this. And so I, I just, I'm not going to go there because then we'll it'll distract from. But I, just, I do want to remind you, if you read through the Proverbs, it's striking how many verses there are about, about women going after their husbands verbally. It's striking because that happens and it's a problem. Okay, um, in, the, in, in Genesis 15, when the curses are being pronounced and God says to the woman, your desire will now be for your husband, it doesn't mean that she's going to want him. What that means is her desire will be to rule over him. And that's not going to be healthy. Okay, so that's what we're trying to look at and, and understand. And, 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 and through the power of the gospel, these behaviors are the ones and these attitudes are the ones that need to be manifested, okay? Questions, anything? Some people laughing quietly as well, so that's good. All right, let's talk a little bit about conflict. Anybody want to talk about conflict? Okay, that's good. All right, let me um, start by giving you some, let's check what time, okay, good. Boy, this is going to be good. All right. Let me start with giving you some uh, myths about conflict, okay? Four myths about conflict. Uh, myth number one, conflict is bad. That's a myth. Uh, conflict is actually, uh, if dealt with in a healthy way, conflict can be clarifying, it can be empowering, it can be helpful. Not all conflict is bad. In fact, conflict itself is not bad. It's not, conflict is never the problem. It's how we handle conflict that is the problem. Conflict is neither good nor bad. It's just there. It doesn't have a moral value, but how we engage in it is where the moral value comes in, okay? So it's a myth that conflict is bad. The second myth, conflict is best avoided. Do I really need to unpack that? I'm going to unpack it in a minute anyway, but, uh, but when we get into conflict styles and strategies, but th there's a myth that conflict is best avoided, okay? Here's, here's the best analogy for that or metaphor or illustration I have for that. We live in Arizona, which every summer we have to deal with forest fires up north, right? And it's a problem, right? Okay, so <clears throat> do you think it would be a good strategy for the forest department to look at a little brush fire and go, eh, it'll go away and walk off and avoid it? Is that going to be a good strategy? No, it's going to become a raging forest fire. Well, that's what happens when you avoid conflict. Okay, you're hoping it'll go away, but it doesn't. It just gets worse, okay? Uh, third myth, people in conflict have a bad relationship. Okay, um, that's a myth too. It, 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 you don't have to have conflict to have a good relationship, but I can tell you that the deepest and best relationships I have with people often involve conflict, but we deal with it in a healthy way. And we expect that there's gonna be conflict, and the conflict actually makes us better. 
okay? At Redemption Church, for instance, we have just an absolutely ruthless policy about candor. Not candor with meanness, but candor meaning we are going to speak truth to each other. And sometimes that's going to create conflict. I'm talking about the staff and the leadership and the pastors. But it's the healthiest church environment I have ever been in in my life. And I believe that we're closer to each other as a result of that. When, when we act in superficial ways, and I've been around churches like that, where everybody's just superficially walking on eggshells, avoiding conflict, and, and th- those relationships are not good. And all you need is one little breach, and boy, then it just blows up. Okay? So people in conflict have a bad relationship. That is a myth. Sometimes they do. Okay? Sometimes they do. But it's not always. And then... The last myth is conflict always damages a relationship. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't have to. Again, it depends on how you handle it. Also depends on forgiveness, which is something we'll talk about in the sixth week. Okay? So as I said, conflict is not the problem. The problem comes when how we, with how we respond to it, engage with it, and deal with it. Now, there are... Um, five, some of you in this room have actually been through this with me, so this will be a review for you. But there are... There are five, uh, essentially five uh, styles or strategies that people engage in for conflict resolution. And you engage in one of these or or a couple of these in your own life, you maybe have never had them actually named for you. Well, they're going to get named for you right now. So I've already mentioned one. The number one most popular conflict strategy or style is what? Avoiding. Yeah. That's our favorite. Everybody's, everybody's favorite. That's everybody's default. Everybody's go-to. I'm just going to try and avoid it. Okay? Unless you're in a car and you think you're invulnerable. All right? Other than that, you're going to avoid it. Okay? Um, but uh, Joseph DeVito, no relation to Danny, but Joseph DeVito, the scholar, um, he has a little uh, mnemonic or whatever you call it that helps you remember this. He says, this style of conflict resolution is called the I lose, you lose style of conflict resolution. Everybody loses when you avoid. Okay, do we have any avoiders here? Okay, I'm, a, I'm good at that. I'm good at that. Bunch of chickens not raising your hands. Okay, the second most, thank you, the second, oh, you got a question, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a story about that. Okay, so, and I was going to do it at the end, but you blew it for me, John, San, John Sanborn. He lives on, okay, um, wife Melissa. Um, I'll tell, this is a perfect time to tell the story. So, you all know, well, you all don't all know him, but Tyler Johnson is the, the lead pastor over all of Redemption. How many of you know Tyler? Most of you, some of you, okay. Wow, transition and... Arcadia is officially over, I'm telling you. Wow. All right. Anyway, Tyler, lead pastor, um, 35 years old. They've got, I don't know, 15 kids now. I can't keep track, but they've got a lot of kids. All right. So anyway, their oldest, who is their bio, uh, one of their biological kids, Braden. Some, do some of you know Braden? He's seven now. He's terrific. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, uh, Braden came to Tyler and said, I got a problem at school. Um, 
there's a guy there that's been bullying me and he, and he, and he keeps kicking me. He's kicking me and I don't like it, but I, I'm not doing anything about it. What do I do? Well, you know, if you know Tyler, Tyler said, um, what, here's what you need to do, Braden. And he instructed him. He said, calmly but firmly stand up to him. Okay, square off with him. Stand up to him. But do it calmly and firmly tell him, you don't like it. This hurts. And tell him he is not to do it anymore to him. So this kid kicks him the next day at school. And Braden squares up to him and calmly and firmly told him, I don't like that. I want you to stop it. It hurts. Don't ever do that to me again. And the bully was like, okay. And walked off. Okay. Well, the next thing you know, Braden, all day long at home, is walking up to Tyler and Haley, his mother, anything they say <laughs> that he doesn't like, he's squaring up with his mom. Mom, I don't like that. I don't want you to do it anymore. Stop doing it. <laughs> okay, so Tyler said, I had to have a second conversation. Okay. And that next conversation was about discernment, okay? So yes, you have to make a decision. And I will tell you, let me tell you something. If Jackie brought up everything that I did that offended her or was a problem, oh my goodness, we would be in conflict resolution all the time. Same thing with everything that she did, okay? What, what, now, now this gets a little tricky. This, the, the idea of stuffing, okay? Don't stuff, okay? You know what? I think stuffing's okay as long as you know how to purge it, okay? But if you're one of those stuffers that's going to bring it back up later on, that's going to be a problem. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. There's, there's um, uh, terms and everything for all of this, okay? You guys need to know that generally speaking, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock is like past my bedtime, so I'm a little slow right now, all right? So some of you know that about me. So anyway, um, so we'll talk about that. But, you know, there are some things you, you do, you got to let them go especially in marriage. If you, if you went after every single thing like Braden did, forget it. It doesn't work, okay? But if it's, if it's going to sit in there and ruminate and you're going to end up becoming bitter and resentful over it, then you got a problem, okay? That's, that's, that's where you kind of have to make that decision, okay? But never bring it up when you're angry and emotional about it. Wait until you can speak calmly about it, you know? So avoiding is our first one. What do you think is the second most popular style or strategy of conflict resolution? Anybody? Attacking. Not quite. Okay, attacking would be a pretty good word, but they use the word competing, and let me unpack that a little bit. Competing. Okay. Um, the, the Greek word for competition is a conflation of two words that literally means to strive with so that both people get better, okay? That's not the competing we're talking about here. This competing is zero-sum game, scorched earth, glass parking lot competition. Destruction is the goal. You are, you, are, you are attacking an enemy, even if it's your spouse. At that moment, they're the enemy, okay? And there has to be a clear winner and a clear loser. And there even has to be some sort of a declaration that that has happened, okay? All right, now... Uh, avoiding is not good. This is also not good, okay? And, and let me talk a little bit about why it's not good. And, and let me tell you that I can speak with great authority to this. Great authority. 
I, I don't have the actual credential, but I have the hours put in to have a PhD in competing as, as conflict resolution style in my life. I, and I would, man, I was good at it. Good at it. And one of the reasons that I did it was because I was good at it and therefore it kept reinforcing the behavior. Are you tracking with this? So I just kept doing it. But here's what happened. At some point in my life, um, I, through a confluence of different events, including the Holy Spirit getting a hold of me, what I began to realize was I would win almost every single time. Virtually every time I would win but at some point down the road, whether it was three weeks, three months, or three years, I would then revisit that situation and I would realize, okay, there was some cost to winning, right? And I, would, I began to realize that almost every single time, if you got far enough away from the conflict, the cost of winning that far outweighed any, any spoils of the victory that I got. And I began to think, if I hadn't competed and instead done something like collaboration or compromise, which I'll get to, if I hadn't competed, my life would be much better off today as a result because the cost is so high, okay? Now, I'll lose, you with some, I'll lose some of you with this illustration. I like the illustration, and I'm the one with the microphone, so I get to tell it. There's this movie that guys especially like to watch. Now, of course, I have only ever watched it on TBS, which means that all the bad stuff is cut out, which means the movie's only 45 minutes long. But it's a wonderful guy's movie, and it's true. Just in just about any household, if you've got the clicker and you're clicking along and this movie is on, a guy will stop clicking and he'll sit there no matter what he's doing. Taxes are due in 15 minutes, honey, but this movie's on. You're going to watch the movie. It's just that kind of a movie. It is a cheap, lousy guy movie made for guys, okay? It stars Patrick Swayze. Does anybody know what movie I'm talking about? It's not Ghost. Or whatever. What? No, not Red Dawn. Roadhouse. Who said that? Yeah, it's Roadhouse. Roadhouse. Guys? Kelly Lynch. Yes, exactly. So, anybody know? You all know the story of Roadhouse? It, it is, but... Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Patrick, Patrick Swayze is, is not a bouncer, but the cooler in, in a nightclub, okay, in this crazy nightclub. And so he beats up guys and gets all the girls and they're naked. So this is a guy's movie, okay? So, um, and Kelly Lynch is in it. So he gets into this fight at this bar and he gets cut. I told you I'm going to lose some of you. He gets cut with a knife across here. Bad, bad, bad cut. So he's got to go to the emergency room. Who's the attending physician in the emergency room? It's Kelly Lynch. Okay, if you don't know who Kelly Lynch is, uh, don't Google her. Anyway, just trust me, okay? So it's Kelly Lynch. Okay, so guys are like, hey, if she were the attending physician at Good Sam, I'd be getting cut every day, okay? That's just the way it is, all right? So she's in there. The attending, of course, Patrick Swayze in there. He's got his shirt off, of course. He's got to have his shirt off, okay? And so when she looks at the cut, he's like going like this, you know? <laughs> you know? And uh, at one point, she asks him some question about how badly he, you know, his body must hurt. And he goes, pain don't hurt. Oh, yeah. And guys are just like, yeah, we love this stuff, you know. Well, anyway, at one point, she said, you got, you got to have 40 staples on this cut, okay. So as she's starting to, oh, that's what happened. He, she, she starts to give him Novocaine. 
And he goes, I don't want any Novocaine. She said, well, this is going to hurt. And he says, the pain don't hurt. So then, so he's stapling him now and he's just sitting there taking it. Of course, they don't show it, but he's taking it. So at one point, she finally looks at him and she says, tell me something. Do you ever win a fight? And he said, nobody ever wins a fight. Now, even in a lousy B guy movie like Roadhouse, you can get theological truth. And Joe's like, I just, <laughs> because there's redeeming value in it, you know? What? What is that? It's a movie? Is it something I need to see? Shark to shark to puss. Is there good theology in it? Is the gospel there? It must be. You tell me. Okay. All right. I'll check it out and give you. So, so here, here. But nobody wins. This is the problem with this. Okay. And and I and I'm sure that you guys, some of you are sitting there going, even if you won't admit it out loud, you're thinking, eh, that's true. Okay, that's right. Now, here's the third one. By the way, DeVito's little thing is competing is I win, you lose. Okay, so I lose, you lose, I win, you lose. The third one is accommodation or accommodating. Okay, so here the accommodator is usually paired with a fierce competitor and has learned that they can achieve short-term peace by accommodating, by just giving in. By losing every time. Accommodating is I lose, you win. Okay? And you like the short-term peace. It's, it's, like, it's like meth. Okay? You get a little high that's pretty good for a short... I've heard. For a short period of time. Okay? But, but then there's all kinds of problems after it. Okay? Accommodation gets short-term peace, but this is where you get long-term bitterness and resentment. Because you start storing up these awful memories. Okay, and, and you're a human being. You're going to hang on to him. Okay, and so this bitterness and resentment eventually will do one of two things. It will either leak out in unhealthy ways, just kind of leak out in attitude, sarcasm, negative, con whatever it is that grow and grow and grow in intensity. Or for some people, it won't leak out. There will just be one day when the wrong button is pushed and there is an explosion like you've never seen before. And it all comes out at once. Okay? I'm seeing some scary looking smiles on some people's faces right now. Okay, so it's like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay? So the, all three of these are very unhealthy and problematic. Uh, the, best, okay, so the best ones are collaboration, collaborating, collaborating. Okay, this is I win and you win. And I'm going to actually give you a handout that will help you understand uh, in more in depth what collaboration or cooperation. Um, the uh, Stephen Littlejohn um, uh, conflict management coding scheme calls it uh, cooperation, not collaboration, but it's the same thing. Cooperation. It's working together so that I win and you win. Okay? But remember last week Ben was talking about... Um, it, you really do need to talk about how you fight, okay? This is, where you, this is where you have to talk about how you fight. Because if you don't talk about how you fight, you're not going to ever get to a point where you really can collaborate, okay? So, um, for years, I was an avoider competitor, okay? I am now just, 
I ruthlessly am committed to collaboration or the fifth one, which is compromise, which I believe is actually a subset of collaboration. But compromise is you do everything that you do in collaboration. It's just that you recognize that you're not going to, in, in a compromising situation, you're not going to get everything you want. And so you're going to have to give up a little bit in order to get some of what you want. So DeVito calls compromise, you win some and you lose some. And the other person wins some and loses some. But together, you actually win more than you lose, okay? So, I, I was a, an avoiding competitor. I have become ruthlessly committed to collaboration. In all of the um, uh, conflict mediation that I do, which I do a lot of that, um, and in my own life, I, I des as, far as, as far as it depends on me, I work hard at collaboration. Now, that's very difficult when the other person is as committed to competing as I am to collaboration. Okay, that's always a very difficult and tough situation, and that happens. And usually what happens in a situation like this, I've had this happen many times, usually what happens is after I've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to collaborate, I've just looked at the person and said, listen, I'm trying to collaborate, you're trying to destroy me, so I'm not going to participate in this anymore. Okay? So how does the competitor see that when I say I'm done participating in this? They see that as I won and they lost. That's how they see it. And so they, unfortunately, they continue in their competition and don't realize maybe I should just talk reasonably and work this out, you know. I might get something out of it at least then. But at that point, they've lost everything, okay? So Jackie and I work very hard on this. And by the way, we spend less time in conflict and arguing and debating and problems like this now because we do this rather than doing this before we finally realized how silly that was. So this is better. Now, I need to talk to you about a couple of other things. Let me erase this because this is, this is really important. There's another strategy that's, Remember how I talked about competing, when you win, you actually, the cost of it is problematic, and if you begin to realize that, there's actually a strategy that some competitors will try to employ, it's very common, where what they're trying to accomplish is to win the competition, but have it not cost them anything, okay? Now, I know some of you are like, yeah, that sounds appealing. I'd, I would like to win and have it not cost. Okay, well, here's what it's called. It's called triangulation. Now, this doesn't, this does, this happens sometimes in marriage. It happens a lot more in workplace conflict than it does in marriage, but it still happens sometimes in marriage. Triangulation is where um, Mark is upset with Keeley but instead of going to Keeley and talking to her about it, he comes to me. And he says, could you talk to Keeley about this? Okay. So then I'm the messenger. And of course, the messenger is the one that always gets beat up. And I go to Keeley. Like an idiot, I go to Keeley. <laughs> okay. And I'm trying to, okay, so that's triangulation. And, and I am telling you, people try to triangulate me all the time. and it, it, Desperate to get me to go and fight their battles. Okay. And I just look him right in the eye and go, you're triangulating me? That is not, that, that, that's not going to happen. I'm not that stupid. And you need to go to that person and talk to them directly. That's the healthy gospel thing to do. And often that varies, very frustrating for that person because they want to win without the cost. But that's triangulation. 
okay? Then the other, the other one is this, and John, your, your question a few minutes ago, or an hour ago, whenever it was, <laughs> um, it speaks, this, this term speaks to that some too. A lot of people engage in what's known as gunny sacking. Have you ever heard this term before, gunny sacking? It's a metaphor, okay? Now, in a minute, I'm going to talk about some of the differences in the way men and women uh, communicate and just a few of the little differences to kind of whet your appetite. So women, don't get offended when I say this, but it's true, okay? More women tend to gunny sack than, women tend to be more of, of gunny sackers than men, okay? Now, what's gunny sacking? Gunny sacking is the person who metaphorically carries around this big gunny sack and they get offended, but they don't, they, don't, they don't mention anything about the offense at that moment, but they put the offense in their sack and they carry it around with them for a while. And they're collecting offenses. And pretty soon they got this big old gunny sack that they're walking around with. Now, guys, you, some, some of you women I know, but most of you guys are going to be like, uh-huh. Okay, so now you're, now you're in it, into it with your spouse. And, you, and she starts to feel like, or he, but she starts to feel like she's losing on points, okay? Here's what she does. Uh, well, what about this? <laughs> and you're sitting there going, uh, What? That happened during the Reagan administration, for crying out loud. I, you sti you're still thinking about that? Okay, you know, but that, and you just start to pull this stuff out, okay? So it's a way of like, if you're kind of losing, you feel like you're losing here, you're going to bring out this other stuff, okay? Again, not helpful. When it comes to, you know, avoiding an offense, or not avoiding offense, but, but overlooking an, an offense, okay? You really have to kind of think about this. Take every thought captive to Christ, but you really got to think about this. Are you really going to be able to overlook it? And if you don't, you need to bring it to him, but you also have to have discernment on what's, what's worth bringing to people. Okay? There are some things that Jackie does repeatedly that annoy me, and you know what? She's always going to do it. I'm not going to fight that battle, and it's okay. And sometimes I even look at it and laugh and think she's cute for it. Okay? There are some things that I do, same thing. Okay, uh, we Switzers, I'm betraying a family secret now. We Switzers, all of us Switzers have the same disease. Jackie calls it the cupboard disease. Anybody else have this disease? We are unable, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, unable to close a cupboard door after we've opened it to get something out, okay? So... Jackie's kind of learned to live with that with me. She tried for the first 24 years of our marriage to break me of that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Actually, I've gotten pretty good with it, but we, we do. I mean, man, you walk, she, every Switzer household she walks into, she's like, look at all the cupboard doors that are open. It's just amazing, you know? And of course, it bothers her. She's not a type A personality, but that bothers her, okay? So her car can have mud and bird stuff all over it, but if a cupboard's open, watch out. Okay, you see what I'm saying? It's just, but we're all quirky like that, and all these things, you know, can add up. So you got to know uh, what to, what to go after and what not to. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes together uh, expanding a little bit more on this conflict and kind of working through a little bit in a surface way this thing called the conflict management coding scheme.
yes. Uh, here, I'll do this. Sorry. Uh, maybe, uh, I think we have a, if you're married, take one for, per, for, per couple. Because I think I don't have enough. Now, let me, um, I got to sort of set the table for discussing this thing. Whenever communication or psychology researchers, because both psychology, the disciplines of psychology and communication do research into conflict, interpersonal conflict. Um, when they do this, they code the behavior that they observe or that is reported upon. And they code it according to this conflict management coding scheme. And I've done the math before, but I think there's 28 different uh, ways that you can code behavior. And they're divided into three major categories. The first major category is avoidance behaviors, and there's little subdivisions of that. The second major category is cooperative or uh, collaborative behaviors or integrative behaviors. Integrative meaning making things whole, okay? So those would be the good behaviors. And then uh, the last one are competitive or disintegrative or destructive behaviors. And, and those are, and you code all of your research behavior according to this. And you get the little marks and then you, you come up with your conclusions about your research by analyzing that. Now, when I was first, uh, when I first came across this in Little John's book on page 278, the first time I ever saw the conflict management coding scheme, okay, uh, it was in there to explain how to code behavior uh, when you're researching interpersonal conflict. I started reading through this thing, and I'm telling you, this is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that I would look at it this way, not my power, because I'm, without Christ, I am a selfish, self-centered, self-serving person. So there's no way this is happening without the Holy Spirit. But I'm starting to read this, and I'm looking at this, and I'm going, I do a lot of those under avoidance behavior. I do none under the cooperative behaviors, and I do a lot under the competitive behaviors. I bet if I could really study this and figure this out, and started eliminating the avoidance behaviors and the competitive behaviors and started leaning into the cooperative behaviors, I'm thinking this might improve my marriage. And so that's what I did. And, and I have a story where Jackie did something similar for me. Okay, so we've both done this at one point in our marriages, years apart. But I will tell you that I did this without even telling her. And about six months after I did this, she actually sat down and she said, what has happened to you? You're different when it comes to conflict. You're a different person. This, I, I, I've been praying about this, so I'm assuming it has something to do with that, but was there something that happened in your life? And I said, as a matter of fact, dear, there was. And I showed her this, and literally she's looking through this going, oh my word, this is exactly what has happened. You know. Now I have a story that I'll tell next week where she did that for me 
in a different context, in a different setting. But it's pretty powerful. Let me tell you something. It's really powerful when you get great information about how to improve your marriage. And the first thing you do is you apply it to yourself rather than going and saying, honey, you need to do this, okay? Right? I'm not getting any amens because you all do that to each other. You're all, you're all like, yeah, no, no, no. I prefer it when I tell my spouse how to do this, okay? That's much better for me. Okay. What? She already found one. Okay, all right, good. Yeah. That, that, that he does or that you do? Which one is it you do, Chelsea? Uh, okay, all right. So here, here are avoidance behaviors, okay? A, a direct denial, okay? And we've talked even about that on Sunday morning. That's one of the excuses that people have. I, I didn't do it, okay? So you know that one. That's an avoidance behavior, right? Implicit denial, massaging and manipulating, and then the evasive remark. Now, of those three, I'm really good at the evasive remarks. I'm really good at that, okay? Jackie knows how to detect them, but I think I'm really good at it. Topic management. I'm very, very good at this. I'm really good at this. Topic shifts and topic avoidance, okay? I, just, I, I can definitely change a subject and get us going down a different road. And I'm not talking about just in my marriage. I'm talking about in any situation where I don't want to feel any discomfort and I don't like the topic that's being discussed, and so I'll kind of go in there and use my rhetorical skills to get us going this way. And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm happy now. We're not getting anything done, but I'm happy now, okay? But it's avoidance. Abstract remarks, I'm really good at that. I'm good at making people go, what did he just say? And then I've distracted them, okay? And then we're off to something else, okay? Uh, non-committal statements, non-committal questions. Procedural remarks, I'm very good at that. Procedural remark is when instead of working on the issue, you're now going, wait a minute now. It, the way, the tone in which you said, the way your voice went up on that one word, we need to talk about that, okay? Or, wait a minute, you talked and now it's my turn to, you know, those kinds of things. You're really not dealing with a conflict you're trying to manage. You're avoiding through managing procedure, okay? And then joking, non-hostile joking. I'm great at that. That's my, that's my best avoid. I am so good at joking. Oh, it's, I'm just relieving tension. No, you're not, Frank. You're avoiding the situation. Okay, really, I'm not helping by relieving the tension? No, you're avoiding the situation, okay? Now, jump over to competitive. I want to do the negative ones first, okay? Personal criticism, man, there, there you go. I'm really good at that, woo. Uh, I'm telling you, James 3 was written to me 2,000 years ago. James wrote that 2,000 years ago about the tongue and the destruction of the that the tongue can do. He wrote it about me going, nobody's going to need this until the 20th and 21st century and it's going to be that Frank guy in Phoenix, okay? Personal criticism, I'm really good at that. I, I have really learned the value of saying, when you do this, this is, what, this is what happens, okay? Which is okay as opposed to you know, you're a jerk and you, you know, you don't, you don't, you, you know, you're not thinking about, you know, in, instead of, instead of dealing with the behavior that's problematic, I go right to the attribution, okay? So that's a problem. Personal criticism. Rejection, pretty good at that. You know, throwing up my hands and turning around and walking away and that's so stupid I'm not even going to deal with it, okay? How many of you use that strategy? That's so stupid I'm not even going to deal Okay. Every guy should raise his hand right now, all right? So... Hostile imperatives, okay? Uh, if you do this, I'm going to do that, okay? 
Now, admittedly, there's times when there are imperatives that are needed, okay? But when that's your first default, you're going to, right out of the gate, you're going to hostile imperatives, that's a problem. Hostile questioning, um, that's pretty self-explanatory. Hostile joking or sarcasm, again, very good at that. Presumptive attribution, we talked about attribution theory two weeks ago, that's what that means. It's, I know why you said that, I know why you're doing that, and I'm not changing my mind. And no matter what you say and what evidence you bring to bear on this, I'm not changing my mind. That's just the way you are, okay? That's not constructive. And then denial of responsibility. We live in a culture that just wants to deny responsibility, so I, we, we all get that. But it's not constructive. All right, now, the cooperative behaviors, which I was doing none of, but now I'm, I'm working hard to do these instead of all the others, okay, is sitting down and describing the problem. Before you even get into the debate or the argument, you, you describe what, what it is that you're going to talk about and why it's a problem. And it's, and it's a, a, a non-evaluative meaning, you're, you're not placing any moral value on it, you're just saying this is what it is, it's describing, okay. Um, when I meet with people now, one of the things I try to tell them is, 95% of my statements are not just observations. At times they might sound to you like I'm making a value judgment, but I'm really not. It's an observation. It's just that maybe you're a little sensitive to it, and that's why it sounds like a value judgment to you. You will know when I'm making a value judgment because I will tell you, this is now a value judgment. This is where I think you're wrong about something, or they're right about something, and I will let you know. If I don't let you know, just assume that I'm making an observation. But that's description. Qualification. Discussion explicitly limits the nature and extent of the problem by tying the issue to a specific behavioral event, not character flaws. Okay? Uh, disclosure. Providing non-observable information, um, information about thoughts and feelings and intentions. In other words, you're willing to self-disclose with the person you're in conflict with. I've discovered that I can tell Jackie anything and I can do it with impunity. I can tell her my deepest, darkest thoughts, and it's a safe place to do that. And she can do the same with me. Okay? Um, soliciting disclosure. You know? Asking the other person to be willing to open up. Okay? Here's a tough one. Soliciting criticism. Okay? I, I solicit criticism quite a bit from Jackie. Sometimes I get a little frustrated that she's not as willing to offer it as, as I, am, I am willing to listen to it. Okay? but soliciting criticism. Uh, empathy and support. Empathy is, is thinking about the situation from the other, trying to think about the situation from the other person's perspective and recognizing that they are going to have a different perspective than you. Everybody has a different perspective. You have to recognize that. Your perspective is not the dominant worldview perspective. We talked about that two weeks ago with false consensus effect. Remember that? The tendency for all of us to um, uh, overestimate the degree to which everyone else agrees with us, okay? That's false consensus effect. They don't agree because they have a different perspective. Their perception is different than you. You've got to talk about that. Uh, concessions, being willing to make concessions, okay? And then accepting responsibility. I don't know if I've said this yet in here before, but um, the biggest challenge I have in... in um, Marriage counseling, the biggest challenge I have is that 99 out of 100 couples, literally 99 out of 100 couples will come in and sit down 
with these two expectations, which are thoroughly ridiculous and unreasonable, but they don't think that that's true. Number one, no matter how long they've been in conflict, and by the way, if you've been married for 15 years, you're talking about 15 years worth of stuff building up, okay? So five years, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, whatever it is, they figure that 45 minutes with the pastor is going to fix it, okay? Literally, they do. That they are shocked. Most people are shocked when I say, we need to meet more than once. Really? This is going to take more than one time? <laughs> Okay, we're off to a bad start already. I can tell you that right now. Okay, and then here's the second problem. And I've talked about this on Sunday morning. It's, it's that both spouses tend to come in there thinking that their job is to get me to take their side so that we can change their partner. Okay? Rarely, if ever, do two spouses walk in, sit down, and say, we're in conflict and we're here to ask you to help us to figure out how God is going to shape and mold us so that we can be better together. But that's what has to happen before you can really start to engage in genuine conflict resolution. Because if my job is just to take, figure out whose side to take and then take that side and then the two of us gang up, that's not going to work for the other spouse. It's not going to work. Okay? They're going to go, I didn't like him. Let's find a different guy. That's what they're going to say. Okay? Now they also say, I didn't like him. Let's find another guy. When I say that God's got to be involved in this and you've got to give up your rights and, and start accepting your responsibilities. They also say the same thing after I say that to them as well. Okay? A lot of people say, you have a biblical solution to this. I'm looking for the other solution, the one where I'm at the center of it. Okay? You know, I'm at the center of receiving. That one also is a problem. Okay? So in cooperation, in collaboration... It is critical that you approach this at least being willing to look at the situation from the other person's perspective, okay? Now, we're done. I'm actually, um, depending on how you measure it, three to five minutes over. So let me tell you where we're going to go in the last two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk, I was going to talk a little bit tonight about uh, the differences in the way men and women communicate. We'll talk about differences between men and women, and we'll get into... Uh, the different emotional needs that men and women have within uh, romantic relationships. Uh, and we will spend a good 75 minutes on that. Uh, and then the last night, I'm going to talk about forgiving and forgiveness. And then really, I'm hoping that we'll save time on that last night, other than the discussion about forgiveness, to kind of open it up for just some questions and we can maybe get some dialogue going. That's, that's kind of my plan and how I want to do this, okay? Let me pray, and then if you need to stick around and have any questions, I'm, I'll be here at least until it's 7.50. I'll be here at least until 7.52, okay? No, I'm kidding. I'll hang around, okay? I've, I've been staying quite, quite a bit, so let me pray, and we'll be done. God, uh, I pray that um, in our marriages, we would seek after you and your Son and the, and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to, uh, to do this work, but we need to be willing to submit to that. And so God, I pray that we'd have the courage to do that. Give us the power to do that. Give us the desire to do that. And, and God, give us the, 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 the desire to have this type of marriage that people can look at and say, that's what marriage is supposed to be like and there's something different about that and really it's Jesus. It's Jesus being at the center of that marriage. So help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.